introduction. And Dave, uh, great to see you, and thank you for for joining us uh, today. Uh, let's start by your. I, I see you have a, a very interesting background there. Can you tell us uh, where that is and why you have it as a background? Yeah, this is uh, one of my favorite Airbnbs in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. So celebrated a, a big birthday there a couple of years back and had a number of pre-COVID, a number of friends and family come down to this Airbnb and uh, had, had a fantastic experience. So in different meetings, I'll, depending on the mood I'm in, I'll have a different uh, Airbnb background uh, to display. So any of us can go on Airbnb and, and rent that. Yeah, that absolutely. Okay, well, I'm going to put it on my list. That looks great. It's so now Airbnb, and I was, as uh, Mackenzie mentioned, uh, I was on the board of, I served on the board of Booking Holdings for 16 yeah. years. Booking and Airbnb are probably the two large, most valuable travel companies in the world, uh, friendly competitors in many ways. So I've been following Airbnb from the beginning. Uh, as we think about your career, uh, it's, it's always interesting to think about what's a dramatic moment in your career, and it has to be the, the beginning of COVID. I was teaching a course at the Stanford Business School in January of 2022, and one of my students was from Wuhan. And I remember talking to him about it, saying, wow, they've, they've quarantined Wuhan. His parents couldn't leave their apartment. They couldn't leave, no one could leave the city. And I said, what a strange world you live in over there in China, thinking that was far away. So love to hear your story there. When did you first hear that COVID was even an issue and how did it affect you? And what happened next to yeah, I mean, we started first hearing about COVID late in uh, the year before, late in December, kind of 19, kind of heard what it was, started seeing it in our results, especially in China. Uh, you know, they had a strong China business. It was, the travel started to get restricted and we were starting to see that in early January. And then, as you said, you know, people were kind of locked down, and but we felt like it was like other, you know, maybe pandemics that we had seen that they were more isolated regionally and that, you know, we would get through this. Um, and, and then, yeah, sure enough, and not too many weeks later, uh, it definitely changed. Um, you know, I remember in February was at a Morgan Stanley kind of conference in San Francisco. And, you know, we were getting serious enough about it that we weren't shaking hands. We were doing elbow bumps and using a lot of uh, hand sanitizer. And, but we were still meeting. And, um, but that was the last kind of big kind of conference and meeting and things shut down pretty quickly after that. What was it like if, when you were at the office or maybe working from home already, when you realized that your business was going to be dramatically changed? What, what metrics were you seeing and what were the internal meetings like? Uh, again, you know, we just started seeing a high rate of cancellations, um, you know, people stopping booking and, and then, you know, we started seeing school shut down and then travel shut down. And so I, I believe it was like March 9th that I stopped. I was commuting. I, you know, spent 17 years in Amazon and I, when I first joined Airbnb, I was commuting down. I'd fly down every Monday morning, fly home on Thursday and work from the Seattle office on Friday. And on March 9th, I, you know, I did not go but down to the office that week. And then, and then the business continued to create our, I mean, we lost 80% of our business in, in two weeks. You know, we were, we were um, having to return, um, you know, money back for those cancellations, but we were also a two-sided marketplace. So it was this challenging part. We have guests who had made deposits for future stays. So they feel like it's their money. The 
you know, the future stays, the host who's waiting for the, for the guest to come feels like it's their money. And so you end up in this really tough position. So not only do we you know, lose 80% of our business, not only do we lose, you know, a billion dollars in cash in that kind of time period, but then we're in this crunch where, you know, guests want their money back and hosts want the deposits that we were holding. And so it was an incredibly challenging time for us to, to navigate. What were the legal terms of service in terms of who get the money, who gets the deposit? And did you, what, what did you decide? Did you, did you go beyond what you were obligated to do? Yeah, there, we had um, an extenuating circumstances policy and we felt like a, you know, once in a lifetime global uh, pandemic qualifies for an extenuating circumstance where we would refund the, the funds back to the guests. And that was very different than maybe some of the other uh, OTAs that actually um, sided with the hosts. But what we also did was we decided it was right to do our best to try to um, make up for some of the funds to the host. So we actually used our own balance sheet and paid out $250 million of deposits to the um, the hosts and that that came out of our uh, pocket because we'd already given all the money back to the guests. So, so that was a payment that you were not legally obligated to make, but you felt was a goodwill Correct. gesture to keep your, your partners uh, in business essentially. And uh, what was the bid and ask on that? Did someone say, yeah, good idea. Let's make it for 10 million. And someone else said, let's do it for 10 billion and had to come up with two. Well, there was a lot of debate. I mean, an easy CFO decision. I mean, the easiest thing a CFO can always do is say no, right? You can just be the naysayer, the the skeptic, the, you know, um, the pessimist. And in here, we had a lot of debate and discussion about the risks and the rewards or the or the benefits, maybe it's not really a reward of providing those funds back. And, and we we did the calculus about how much money we could afford. And at the time, that's basically all we felt like we could comfortably afford because we actually hadn't even raised, we had, we had ended the year with about $3 billion in cash. As I said, we burned through a billion in that time period. We felt like we could maybe give, and this was the debate, could you give 500 million? Could you give you know 100 million? Could you give zero? Um, and we felt like 250 million was something we could afford and something that, that was meaningful. It would never be enough. There really would never, we could give 500 million, it wouldn't be enough. We could give, you know, unless we gave all the deposits back, it wouldn't be enough. And we just so didn't- What, what was the total money. amount of the deposits? You know, again, total deposits were over a billion dollars, you know, a billion, yeah. so um, just yeah. as a scale. So they were kind of expecting a billion and we ended up giving them basically 250 million because we'd given the billion back to, you know, the guests. Right. Um, and so I, I think that was a challenging CFO decision, right? Again, it'd be really easy to just say, no, we don't have it. Um, but, um, you know, we felt like this was actually a deposit in a way to the goodwill of the hosts, which still not all hosts were satisfied, but they were still understood the predicament we were in, which is if right. we give away too much money, we, we won't have enough funds to survive. And then we were modeling every day, you know, right. our forecasted burn rate of cash and how long we had. Um, you know, to go before we would actually run out of cash ourselves. Well, congratulations on having uh, made some terrific decisions because Airbnb today is thriving and uh, it's better than ever. So you obviously did a terrific job. We'll come Thank back you. to the Airbnb story a little later, but let's go back to the beginning of your career. Where did you grow up and how did you take it? Tell us on the chronological path to getting from not being a CFO to being a kid to being a CFO. Did you, did you always want to be a CFO when you were some people yeah, I, I didn't know I didn't know what a CFO was. I had no clue. Um, you know, I grew up in Western Montana, Missoula, Montana, um, and I'm four generations of Montana on both sides of my family. So both my dad's family and my mom's family homesteaded in the late 1800s. 
um, in, one in Western Montana, one in Eastern, and then they met in, in college in, in Missoula, and um, and then that's where I kind of grew up. And so, um, yeah, you know, growing up in Missoula, it's hard. Your your most successful business person is running the you know the Ford car dealership, maybe the local lumber mill, maybe owns you know five mini mart gas stations. I mean, that's kind of what business meant to me, kind of growing up. And so I had no idea what a CFO was, but uh, in fact, I really wanted to be an architect. Was initially what I wanted to be, and um, and I, I still I think it's an amazing career, and I and I admire architecture a great deal. But then when I joined Montana State, and uh, I was a skier, so I ski ski race, and I was an NCAA ski racer for Montana State. Um, and when I was going to apply to the, the College of Architecture, I looked at the uh, list of salaries, starting salaries of the architect. Oh, well, just everybody. And at the top was engineering, at the bottom was architect. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> You know, I got, I, I was very pragmatic. Like, I'm decent with numbers. I, I think I, I'm going to choose the, uh, the engineering path. So very pragmatically, I switched and, uh, and that's where I started my career as an industrial engineer. And then what happened next after, after college? Well, I think the, one of the best piece of advice I got during college at the time was to work for the best company you could work for. Just regardless where it is, get some great training and work for the best company you could work for. And, and for me, there were several bigger companies that would come to Montana State and recruit. And one of the bet, better companies was uh, Procter & Gamble. And uh, Procter & Gamble would hire two uh, engineers every year to a manufacturing plant in Iowa City, Iowa. The, the plant manager was a former Montana State uh, alumnus, and he would hire two engineers out of the school every year. And I was fortunate enough to be one of those engineers, even though I moved to the flatlands of Iowa, where the skiing is not nearly as good as it is in Montana. But it was his best piece of advice because it was really, you know, I have a state uh, engineering degree. I don't have an Ivy League degree, but I have an Ivy League um, education through Procter & Gamble. It was uh, the training and development that the company gave me was outstanding and so ended up being there 10 years they supported me in getting my MBA while I was in Iowa so that's why I have an MBA from the University of Iowa so I worked all day and I got uh, did my MBA at night over the course of three years and I learned a great deal and so then that's my my Ivy League education so. what did the factory manufacture uh toothpaste so I made uh, my very first job you know I'm 21 years old and I'm running a manufacturing line 30 people that are all older than I am running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, putting toothpaste in toothpaste tubes. So, um, yeah, so there's a whole manufacturing system to pump the toothpaste in those tubes. And, that, and that's what I did. And then I was promoted not too long after to make shampoo. So, you know, I kind of moved my way up, made Pantene all, shampoo. All in the same factory? Each, there's yeah, it made, it made Crest toothpaste, Pert and Pantene shampoos and Scope mouthwash. It was all made there and it still is. I, I went, um, I was on a little road trip for my daughter looking at schools and uh, went through Iowa, you know, the University of Iowa and went and went to the plant that's still there, cranking out uh, toothpaste and shampoo. So my job between the two years of business school was at Procter Gamble in Cincinnati. I was oh, excellent. a brand assistant on Puritan yeah. One. And uh, is it, what a great company. I mean, they have so many leaders. Uh, I'm not sure if people know, but Meg Whitman, uh, Steve Ballmer, Scott Cook were all in the Procter & Gamble uh, uh, brand management program there. So yes. terrific experience. That's excellent. Yeah, so I had friends that went the brand management track and had some very successful careers. And I, I really liked the numbers side and I, I took the finance track. So um, I really enjoyed that end of it, the science of math and um, you know, finance. And so I took the finance path.
So how do you go from being an industrial engineer to being in finance? Well, that's basically it. I mean, as an industrial engineer, a lot of what you're doing is problem solving. You're looking at an investment analysis. Um, do you invest in people? Do you invest in machines? How do you get more efficient? Um, how do you drive a high ROI? And so you end up kind of doing a lot of budgeting and modeling and financial analysis as part of the industrial engineering work. And so it actually segues really nicely. And as I said, so while I was there and got my MBA, I kind of liked that path of investment analysis and then operating finance. So I could, you know, there are many paths of finance. You can't bucket them, you know, too much, but broadly, I think there's like an operations finance kind of um, lens. And I think that's more my background. There can be more of a accounting tax kind of treasury lens. Like um, there can be more of a banking, um, business development, corporate development lens. I mean, you know, there are many degrees of gray in between there, but um, my background in industrial engineering is much more that operations. How do you get more efficient at what you do? How do you do more with less? How do you just constantly uh, improve uh, your results? And so it's a lot of metrics and analysis. And that worked really well at Amazon is really the way Amazon was running. And um, many of our finance leaders at Amazon came out of the GE. And I was very fortunate to, you know, um, you know, I was a big Amazon shopper and I, one day I was, you know, clicked on the bottom of the homepage on amazon.com on careers and I kind of pulled up the job postings and there was this finance rule there and I felt like, and I read it and I was like, wow, that, that is me. And I, I just, that is, I totally, you know, checked the boxes and this is 1999 and um, I asked my wife, hey, you know, we've always thought about getting back to the Northwest. You know, what do you think about her brother was living here in Seattle? I'm like, what do you think about going, trying to apply for this job? And she's sure. So I, you know, apply online through ASCII text, right? They barely even, you know, and uh, enter my resume. And six weeks later, I had a job here at Amazon and um, yeah, it's crazy times. So and that was from Cincinnati to, uh, to Seattle and we moved and my wife hadn't even seen Seattle before, but uh made the plunge. Terrific. What was your first role at Amazon? So I was running, this was 99. Um, I was running new business development finance. So I was doing things like analyzing if Amazon should start selling paint, uh, should start, you know, getting into home and tools and home improvement and things. You know, my first day in the job though was uh, literally the first day of the job. It's, it's peak December 99. And I'm generating the revenue flash for Amazon and I'm giving it to Jeff Bezos. And like, I have no idea what I'm, I'm like, you know, literally the first day, like they did, there was no kind of, you know, apprenticeship. There was no kind of learning the ropes. It's like, well, here's your computer and you need to get this report to Jeff by the end of the day. And I was scared to death to hit enter on, um, on the report that we got about. And then, and then I packed books all night because it was peak. So I go down the warehouse that we had in Seattle and pack books till, you know, four in the morning, had frozen burritos in the middle of the night to kind of keep you going. And I did that for a whole week. And I, Call my wife up and go. I don't know what I've just done here, but this <laughs> this place is this place is pretty crazy. So, um, but I but I liked it. So the, the early stories of Amazon were that they didn't give you a desk; you had to buy a, a a door at Home Depot and build your own desk. Did you do that? Um, I did have a door desk. It was already built for me. But, <laughs> uh, but yes, you no. Know, every door, every desk was a door. It also it, it um, also just remind everybody. Uh, for frugality. There was a point where we actually did the analysis. It was more expensive to buy the doors and have the four by, you know, the uh, these four by fours as legs than it would be to just have a pre-manufactured desk from Ikea or something. But but it, it still had it had the connotation of frugality. 
Yeah. It reminded you when you get splinters in your hands every once in a while, it just kind of reminded you about the <laughs> reality. So you got to meet Je and work, work with Jeff Bezos early on. Yeah, right out early days. Yeah. Obviously, he's become this incredible icon today and one of the most successful business people in history. What, what was your personal experience with him like? You know, he just was relentlessly inquisitive. Like he just was always uh, very engaged and focused and learning and understanding. And I think that, and, and he just, you know, never, um, you know, it was, it was always important to kind of drill down to kind of the, the root of any kind of problem or issue. And like, he just was relentless in that. And so it was never okay to just stay at a surface level. We, and we would dive incredibly deep into the details. Um, and I think that was a great learning for me is just to be relentless, uh, to be incredibly detail oriented, uh, to be a bit of a perfectionist. And again, from my engineering days, that, that tended to work you know, pretty well for me. Um, but you know, his, I've heard about his relentless pursuit of perfection is pretty amazing. There, oh, his, his, his relentless. His, yeah, Jeff's, Jeff's yeah. kind of demand, you know, demanding yeah. kind of perfection, the expectation of, of, um, delivery was was amazing. So the, the, when I hear stories like that, uh, there's always the risk of a leader who's detail-oriented becoming a micromanager. And then people say, if you're going to make all those decisions, why do you even have me around? What's, what's my job if you're, if you're doing all this? And how did, and obviously he was pretty successful, so did he have a, a way of balancing the detail orientation with not being a micromanager or he would audit. It's kind of like um, trust but verify. You know, okay. would be one kind of saying. Or, um, but each each group, you know, ended up being. You know, he built all of these uh, very autonomous teams, small teams. Called them two pizza teams. You know, basically a team that's um, no bigger than what could be fed by two pizzas. So you know, eight to ten people, and. And if the team got too big, get to 20 again, because their remit became so large, he would say, well, how do we focus the remit of any of that team again so that they could be two smaller teams? So he kept kind of parsing them down. And then the question is, okay, what is that team there to deliver? And um, for a while we worked on these things, we called them fitness functions, but it was effectively, what's the measure of success of that two person, you know, that 10 person team, that two pizza team. And um, you know, and so as long as we aligned on what the team was supposed to do, deliver, they just were given free reign to just go deliver it. And so it was really being oriented around what the success measure was. And uh, so that then he could just periodically audit the progress against that success measure, not against how it's uh, specifically delivered. And so early on, what was your two pizza team? What were your deliverables? Well, that was, I'm a, I was in finance, so I'd be the partner to a two pizza team. So, okay. uh, you know, depending you on the group, two one, pizza team one orientation, engineering and that kind of thing. So um, I was more in like FP&A, then because it was the dot-com bust of 2000, right? So I went from new business development, like, no, we're not going to sell paint. We're not doing new businesses. We're, we're in retrenchment mode. We actually had a, you know, by 2001, we have a small layoff. We're, we're doing things like uh, the first free shipping promotion, like, you know, we, we were saying, hey, wouldn't it be amazing if we could give free shipping for any order over $99? And you kind of do all the financial analysis and go, hey, you're right. If you get a just incremental item, the marginal cost of shipping isn't that much more. We get a few more items in the box, it, it justifies. And then Jeff would be like, well, let's make it $49. 
and you do the math and you go, well, if you get enough incremental sales, you know, you kind of lose money on each sale a little bit, make a little less in each sale, but you make enough incremental sales, we can see it. So we moved to $49. Then he goes, we're going to make free shipping on $25. And I kind of do the math and like, there is no scenario of incrementality that makes any rational sense that free shipping over $25 will make sense. It just does not make sense. And Jeff's like, well, we're going to do it. We're I want to spend the money there. I don't want to spend it on TV advertising. You know, we, Amazon didn't have TV advertising for years. And it was, it was a great learning for me because it's like this is where the, the black and white numbers, like there is no way you can justify the incremental you know, sales to just to justify $25 free shipping. But strategically, you could if you just shifted the, it shifted the mind, the perception of the customer, and we would invest there and not in marketing. And it was obviously one, you know, one more brilliant um, things that ever kind of happened in e-commerce. Well, as a consumer, I can tell you when I buy something for eight bucks in a single box and it comes by itself, and I go, I, I feel yeah. great. I, just, I can't believe it. It reminds me. Did you ever see the Music Man, the old Broadway show? Uh, I never did. There's a song called the Wells Fargo Wagon. It's about Iowa. Uh, okay. And it's everyone singing about when the Wells Fargo Wagon comes down the street, bringing, bring things they bought on mail order catalogs. And that's the way I feel every time the Amazon truck shows up. That's, awesome. uh, that's great. So, so back yeah. to your, your, you were FP&A supporting, were you supporting one two pizza team or multiple two pizza teams? I, I was supporting, I mean, again, um, Finance wouldn't be dedicated to each individual PT team. I might have a, a, a group of them. Like I was doing FP&A for North America, but the North America team may have, you know, groups of people, you know, all sub-segmented, you know, down to that level. It was, it wasn't perfect, but that's okay. the general idea. So I supported North America. Um, and that's where, again, we were doing a lot of the free shipping uh, analysis things. So, so what happened next? You, you, you moved to a different role within Amazon then? Yeah, at Amazon, I was really fortunate that um, we kept growing so much and had so many different opportunities. I probably changed roles every 12 to 18 months. So soon after, because of my experience leading marketing finance at Procter & Gamble, I rolled over and I led marketing finance for North America. Um, and then soon after, the marketing finance leader for worldwide moved on and I became you know, the finance director for global marketing. Um, and so I did that for a while. Then I moved over and I led worldwide transportation. So kind of back to my engineering roots, I uh, went back and um, applied it towards all of the transportation finance. So working on all the contracts with Royal Mail, Deutsche Post, you know, FedEx, UPS, um, you know, all, all around the world. So did that. And then I ran finance for all the fulfillment centers in North America. So again, the engineering background worked really well because um, the, you know, making toothpaste is just a different manufacturing process than picking, packing, and shipping boxes out of a warehouse. And so I ran finance for all the warehouses in in North America called fulfillment centers. Um, and then, and so I had a fairly big team. I was traveling a lot, you know, I don't know, I mean, at the time what I felt like was a big team, I don't know, hundred people or so, because um, we had teams running finance in all these fulfillment centers. And the CFO um, says, hey, I, we have this, um, you know, new business that would like you to, you know, be the finance partner support for and, um, you know, it's, it's doing this uh, simple storage service is going to be this cloud computing business and like cloud computing, like, what is that? And why are we doing that? Because like, we're all about shipping books to people and, and toys and, and DVDs and stuff. And they're like, well, I don't know, it's, it's Jeff really is passionate about this space. We have one of our best leaders going on to it. It's Andy Jassy's going to lead it. And there's like 30 engineers 
um, and you and you're going to get one analyst to kind of help you. And I'm like, so I debated and I kind of talked to my wife about like, well, should I make this move? CFOs asked me to go take this. They really want a, a strong finance leader to help grow it. And all the internal people that I was working with were like, don't take that job, David. Like, <laughs> I'm like, it's not core. It's not, it's not, it won't be, it's, you know, it's not where you really want to be. And, uh, but had a few more conversations. And again, Tom, Sc Tom Skutek was our CFO at the time. And, um, and he's like, no, I really like you to take it. We need a really strong leader to help make sure to grow. We need, and we need the leader to be bigger than the role it is today because we need the leader that can be two years from now, right? Um, and so I took the job and it was an amazing experience, right? And, and obviously it's grown into Amazon Web Services and been incredibly successful and large. And I got to work closely with Andy Jassy for you know, a couple of years and um, is now the, you know, the CEO of, of Amazon. And, um, and so it was, it was a great experience. And I, I thought it was a really good um, teaching moment of taking a risk. And, um, and I think I've done that then now multiple times in my career. And it's one of the things, piece of advice that I give to others is, um, you know, take some of these risks. So you need to calculate it. Like if it doesn't work out, what can you do? But you know what? You can do almost anything for two years. It's like, and as long, and I bet you you're going to be stretched in that given role. And so uh, as long as you feel like you have, you know, if it doesn't work out, what happens, you should take that risk. And um, that stretch, I think you'll, you'll learn a ton out of it. I always have. So you were you had a hundred people reporting to you, and you moved to a job with one person reporting to you. Yeah, exactly. That's a big, a big, a, a big. Yeah. People would perceive it as a big risk. Uh, now you started working with Andy, who's an, also an incredible executive. What's what's he like to work with compared to Jeff Bezos? You know, they're 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 cut from the same cloth. Again, they're very um, in, just incredibly inquisitive. I mean, Andy. Um, We'll just go very deep in any given subject and make sure that we have un, you know unearthed every single rock, turned it all over, and just. But he's very curious. It's just um, inquisitive. Wants to know why. And you know, we often at Amazon will do like five whys. Like you just, well, why is this? Well, then why? And then why? And you just keep going until you really understand kind of the root of it. Um, and he's just incredibly sharp with um, you know just the business itself. Like he's very in the details, not knowledgeable about the details, but somewhere to Jeff relies on the team to kind of execute and make sure that we audit, you know, when we're on track or off track of kind of the, the key measure for any given team. So, um, yeah. It's a great so creatively asked one of the most incredible organizations in the world. You were there from almost the beginning. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that like over the years for you to, to work as AWS just became a rocket ship? Well, it was it was really fun because you know we had some difficult things to work out. You had everything from the operation side. How do you actually just run the system? And early days, I mean, simple storage service was just the you know literally this you know cloud storage, and um, you had a lot of very small you know Amazon got its start with just small startup companies using this kind of cloud storage, and so then you had to run it, had to have it be available, had it to be redundant, had to you know you know really bust. And so we had a whole bunch of metrics and analysis to ensure that it was operating really well. In finance, we ran those. You know, I, I would run the weekly business review meeting looking at you know uptime and latency and utilization and all, all these metrics to make sure that it's running well. And at the same time, we actually had to run things like price, how you price this thing. 
and um, and what is the right price to, to charge? And that was a real challenge because you wanted to charge a low enough price to compel people to make the move, but you also didn't couldn't just burn. I mean, one of the things that, you know, as much as Amazon would invest in areas, you know, each individual business really had to kind of carry its own weight. And uh, we weren't going to just pour indiscriminate dollars at something, but we needed to figure out what to price that. And so one of the challenges was to price, and I, and I still remember, I mean, we, we charged seven cents per gigabyte per month for storage. And um, the, um, at, you know, at the time, the, the cost of actually providing it was three times that. But we, you know, and so it's kind of like, but we had a clear path for how we could get from 21 cents to seven cents. And then again, as of, and as then the finance leader, I'm, I'm marking our way, okay, are we on track? Okay, you have these 15 initiatives that you need to do to get from 21 cents to seven cents. Are you on track to kind of go deliver it? And then we kept working it down and then we get to seven cents and then like, okay, well now we need to make it, you know, five cents and you're like, well, wait a minute, we just got to seven and like, well, you need to keep on going. And, but it was that, you know, pricing for what the value was, was key. So one of the big things we did is just look at the value of what we were providing, what the alternatives were and price to that. And then um, figured out how to, you know, make the cost match up, which was very different, you know, again, an easy, an easy solution is do cost plus, right? Um, it's like, there's a cost, I want a 20% margin, there's your price. We never would have been successful with that kind of models. How long did it take you to get from 21 cents to seven cents? I don't remember. You know, um, it, it was probably it was within 18 months, I think, you know, that we, we brought it down. Yeah. And, and what were some of the key? You said there were 15 different projects that that helped you do that. What were some of the key things? Well, it'd be things like, well, utilization would be one. So if you have greater utilization of the servers, obviously you get, um, you know, reduce your cost. Server costs themselves. Like, okay, if we buy, you know, at small scale, you're buying, 100 servers at larger scale, you're buying 10,000 servers. So, you, you know, you start, you start scaling that up. Um, you know, you, you move them to a lower cost location. So, okay, we're going to build out the shell of a building that's going to have many more servers. You're going to amortize that cost over. So it's usually some combination of utilization uh, or, you know, cost. And then the utilization could be improved by software. So then the software is say, okay, I'm going to change, you know, I can deploy this new code that will better utilize the, you know, the service. And then, then I would get over my head, but I would trust that the engineer knew what they were talking about and could could actually kind of deliver on their promise. Great. Well, we're going to bring you up to speed to Airbnb now, but before we do, I'll just say to the people on the on the call, uh, feel free to put questions in chat and uh, we'll I'll, I'll look through the questions and be happy to ask your questions as well. Uh, so uh, let's talk about Airbnb. How did you get from AWS to Airbnb? Well, I guess it's another one of those kind of big leaps, right? Um, so I was, we were a big traveling family. Um, I had led finance for the international websites at Amazon for uh, several years. And when I was in that role, um, I in the summer when the kids were in school, I actually would work from Europe and, you know, and we got Airbnbs so that I could live in the neighborhood. Because I actually, you know, one time thought about whether I'd be an expat and kind of have the experience of living there. And since I didn't really have that luxury because I was running all the websites around the world, including, you know, India and China and, and um, everywhere, but I wanted to be in Europe, um, we got Airbnbs and lived in neighborhoods in Paris and neighborhoods in London and lived like locals. And so I became an Airbnb fan at that time. And so, um, yeah, my last role at Amazon, I was running worldwide consumer business and I had 
you know, about a 3,000 person finance team spread all around the world. And I get this call to kind of, you know, join Airbnb. And, I, and it was like one of those calls you need to take. It's like, I'm, I'm, it's an amazing company doing some really great things. And when Brian Chesky, the CEO called and, and wanted to talk to me, I'm like, well, I'm going to take the call. And then the more I talked to him and the more I heard about his ambitions to kind of grow and develop this company and, and what he wanted out of that, um, the more excited I got. And the, when what he really wanted was a really strong operating CFO, uh, whereas the previous CFO was more of an investment kind of banker, more traditional CFO in that sense, he really wanted uh, a partner to help him run the business and um, look at all the metrics and the analysis of how to kind of run uh, run the business. Um, and so then I also looked and then Airbnb was also expanding, it was getting into transportation, it was getting into uh, experiences and, and a magazine and some of these other areas. And so I saw an, analogies to Amazon, which started in books and went to music and went to DVDs and expanded. And I felt like I could use my, you know, 20 years, 30 years of kind of business experience to kind of apply to Airbnb to grow it to its next phase. So then I was willing to, you know, make that leap of going from a 3000 person finance org to a 200, you know, person finance org and kind of start again. And and not that people is the measure of success, because it really isn't. I'm, we're never going to be a 3,000 person finance team at Airbnb. But the ability to kind of grow the business into something amazing, um, I think we're, I knew we could do it then. I know we're, we're doing it now. And I couldn't be more excited about where we're going. Well, that's a, that's a terrific story. What are some of the operating challenges at Airbnb that are comparable to what you did at with the costs of uh, yeah. the US. Yeah, I mean, there, there, I guess there are more analogies than there are, um, you know, direct um, comparisons. You know, we're in the travel space, you know, you're, you are you just have a different kind of sense of, of metrics. We are, we're a two-sided marketplace. I also run finance for the merchant services business at Amazon, which is where you have sellers selling their items on Amazon. And so this kind of two-sided marketplace. I think that's what's kind of key at Airbnb is um, what are you, are you giving, uh, the tools for the seller, or in this case for us, it's the host to provide their service. So you're giving them and you make it easy for them to onboard or you make it easy for them to you know, make their listing. Are you giving them good value for the fees that you're kind of charging to them? And why are you charging those fees? And then matching up that with the guests, are you giving the guests good value? Are they getting great selection? Um, are they getting a great value for their staying? Are they happy with the experience? And what's that cost to kind of service them through customer service and things? So, you know, Airbnb's flywheel is not too different than Amazon's flywheel. It's like you get more supply, you get more, um, you know, individual hosts with amazing supply that is only available on Airbnb. You're going to bring more guests. You get more guests than the supply comes because this is where the guests are. They get a great experience. It works really well and they keep coming back. So um, those are very analogous, analogous. And so then things like our, you know, weekly metrics reviews and, and how we kind of dive into the um, details of what's working or not working about the business are, are similar. There's just maybe some different metrics. Um, well, you know, utilization of, of properties versus utilization of servers. Or... Oh, that's, that's interesting. So that would be a lever of improving your economics is had, exactly. had utilization of, uh, of the yeah. properties. Counter availability or other metrics like that. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you looked at uh, marketing costs at Amazon and Airbnb obviously spends a lot on marketing as well. And, and the question for many finance people is how can you figure out what the ROI on marketing, particularly brand marketing is? Yeah. And how have you addressed that in your career, either at Amazon or at well, I've done it a few different ways. Um, 
early at Amazon, we looked at doing TV and, you know, kept going on the free shipping route, but we did do some analysis in TV. We, we launched a couple of television ads in uh, a couple of different markets in the U.S. and measured the incrementality of the sales in those markets. And um, see if I can remember all the numbers, but it basically we, we saw about a 5% lift in sales in those markets. But the time um, to scale it nationally, it was going to cost $50 million of marketing it. Cause in order, you know, TV is kind of a scale business. You have to kind of have sufficient coverage and repeat rate. And so it was going to cost $50 million. And, and so then if you think that we had a, you know, I'll use round numbers, say 10% contribution margin. So, you know, you needed, you know, $500 million of incremental sales to justify that. And so, and they needed to do the 500 million on, you know, 5% um, incremental growth. So you actually needed, you know, to be at what, $10 billion of sales in order to grow 5% and justify the marketing. And, and we weren't to that size and scale at that time, you know, we were still, you know, I don't know, single digit billions of sales. And so it just never quite justified um, given the incrementality we had at the time. So that's what we did early days. Later on, what happened for brand marketing at Amazon is start doing devices. And actually what was really amazing um, is that Amazon would advertise Kindles and uh, in advertising the Kindle, they sold a lot more, you know, toys and um, hardware items and books and other things. So they sold more general merchandise things. And so um, they got a one-two punch. They got to advertise this unique thing that's only available on Amazon. And then it also drove sales there. And then Amazon would use a um, marketing, like set-top box analysis so they could actually measure people that have seen the ads and their actual response to those ads. Um, and then, you know, here at Airbnb, we've actually changed our marketing philosophy pretty dramatically. Um, we were more reliant on paid marketing, um, and we were sharing a lot of our inventory um, on other platforms and other services. And really, one of the things that we did, uh, and we started learning this actually pre-COVID, and then it just accelerated in COVID, is just we shouldn't be sharing, you know, like the one unique thing is, is the unique properties we have, and we have more unique properties on Airbnb than, than anyone else. And so we don't share those anywhere else. So they really only are, many, many of them are only available on, you know, the vast majority of our listings are only available on Airbnb. Uh, we clearly have some cross-listed, but um, the vast majority are ours. And um, we just became less reliant on search engine marketing. And we dramatically scaled back our search engine marketing spend and focused on the brand spend about educating people about what is unique about Airbnb and why should they come to us. And we actually can now advertise on both sides. We can advertise to hosts what it means to be a host and to guests, you know, what it means to be a guest at the same time. Like, oh, this is a host experience. This is what's different about Airbnb. So that's the way we've been focusing on marketing. And, and we've dramatically then reduced our overall marketing spend. And it's been a significant driver of our profitability um, since COVID. You dramatically reduced your direct marketing spend, per se, but kept Correct. your paid Exactly. Well, and the overall dollars, the actual oh, absolute okay. uh, marketing you, percentage you reduced, revenue is substantially reduced since um, mm -hmm. pre-COVID. Yeah. Uh, both direct response and brand. Yes. And, and um, no, increased brand, okay. dramatically reduced direct response, and the net the overall is substantially lower. Right. And, and then, um, you know, but again, we're using, um, you know, multivariate analysis to analyze the incremental sales results and the, the effectiveness of our marketing 
It was interesting that you said many of your hosts are exclusive to Air to Airbnb. Why would it be in a host's interest? If, you, if you're an Amazon seller, you're probably also listing on eBay and other marketplaces like that. Why would a host be exclusive to Airbnb? What's the benefit to the host? You know, the vast majority of our hosts, so, you know, are individual hosts. So we have about 4 million hosts around the world. And 90% of those are kind of individuals. They're just people like you and I that have a, they're, they're sharing their own home or maybe a second home. And when you're doing that, you only need so many nights. You, you're not like a hotel. You don't want 100% occupancy. You just, you want to share the, the your home when you want to share it. And you want to, you often have a target for earnings that you, you know, hey, I want to earn, pick the number $1,000 a month in, in this. Or, and, and if I earn that, I'm happy. And the reality is that then in general, we can provide that for them. And then we, we uniquely provide tools for individual hosts that others don't. So we do all of the payment support. And, you know, um, as you know, you know, booking doesn't, doesn't do all the payments, nor does um, Expedia. The, we do all the customer support. We give a million dollar guarantee for liability insurance. We do a million dollar host, um, you know, guarantee for the um homeowners protection, you know, so we have all these unique things that are built for individual hosts that other platforms aren't doing. And we provide them the nights and the dock target amount. So they have no need. And, but then that's the thing that wakes us up every night, you know, make sure that, you know, keeps me up at night is making sure that we continue to provide amazing service to those individual hosts. So they stay with us and they don't have a need to go elsewhere. That's uh, very persuasive. Uh, so we're beginning to get questions from the audience and encourage people. It's actually in the Q&A uh, tab uh, to ask questions. One que first question is, uh, let's talk about more about metrics. How do you measure success both within the finance organization as well as uh, whether the customers are having a successful experience? Yeah, I guess those are two different things. On the internal success measures for finance, you know, we look, you know, I try to measure across a few different dimensions. You know, one is the like business results, like the output business that uh, results that that finance team maybe supports. One would be around how they actually partner with them. So it's usually business partnership goals, like, because those are very different depending on the team. Like if you're, a, you know, the finance technology group who's working on an Oracle implementation, your measure of success for partnership is gonna be different than if you're the marketing finance kind of team. Um, process improvement, I'm mean, gonna go back to my industrial engineering days, I always try to ask the teams, or how do you get better? How do you do um, either do it faster, do it more with fewer people, do it with fewer hours? Um, how do you improve the processes that you run? Um, usually look for goals around um, team improvement. So how do you make the team better? You know, uh, so team improvement goals and then personal improvement goals. Um, and usually I try to ask for about two of each of those. So you end up with about 10 core goals for each individual um, that looks at you know, the success for their group. You know, on the business uh, side- I'm sorry, could you repeat? You said sure. there, were, there were 10 um, goals in five what, different categories. Yeah, the categories are um, the business metrics that they support. So again, yeah. if you're in marketing and maybe, you know, driving the return on investment of your marketing spend. So, but that's, it's usually the goal that your business partner has. Then it's the, what are the business partnership goals? Like, how do you get better to be a partner? It's like, okay, I'm going to present to the team, you know, at their team meetings, or I'm going to give them a new report, or I'm going to, you know, be, how do you just be a better business partner? Um, it's how do you get better at the work? Like just be more efficient at whatever process. Um, it's then team development goals and then individual development goals. That's so those are business, 
partnership, efficiency, team, individual. Well, that's a, a terrific framework. I think probably everybody on this call could, could, could use that. Yeah. Uh, so, so, and and then uh, to customer metrics. Yeah, you know, I think one of the great things we learned at Amazon is to be less focused on the output metric of revenue or profitability specifically. Those are important and you need to measure them, critical. But you really measure the input drivers of those. And so again, at Amazon, um, and I'll do the analogy to Airbnb, at Amazon it was, you know, selection drives sales. And so everything was relentlessly driving. Do we have the selection? Is it in stock? Is it available? Um, it's price. Is it priced well? And is it, um, you know, competitive? Um, and so you, and if you felt like you get the right input metrics and you drive those, the output metrics will come. And so it was interesting in Amazon because there could be a business like, and often what happens, something like the video game business could be on fire, growing amazingly strong in revenue and, and therefore even profit because a new, I don't know, Sony PlayStation just came out. But the business leader may not be the best leader at that time. They may not keeping it in stock. They may not be pricing it effectively. They may not be merchandising it really well. And so that leader, even though on the surface, the output metric was amazing, would be replaced by a business leader that is more effective at actually delivering the right input because it's the input metrics that drive. And I thought that that was always, uh, I thought it was an important lesson. Like how you do it is even more important than maybe the, the results aren't even to your driving. And Airbnb, the analogy would be similar. It's like, okay, do we have enough supply do we have enough, you know, hosts? Do we have enough host growth in the right locations? Are their homes well-priced? Are they of good value? Are they good quality? What's the star rating? And so we, we measure all of those metrics so that when a guest comes, they see great properties at great prices with great, you know, host ratings. So they have a great experience. And if we do those right, guess what? Revenue, revenue will come. And then on the, you know, on the cost side, you just do the other opposite. It's like, well, how do you drive down handle time and customer support and how do you you know decrease defects so people don't even have to call and how do you do all those well again those are the inputs you do those well and then the costs come down and that's guess what you're more profitable so your your primary metric isn't the profit your primary metric is reducing defects of customer service and never have to call and um and then the output metric will be a more profitable business so focus on the inputs and the outputs will come the hard part the hard part of that is making sure you get the right inputs and you're constantly iterating and revising it. So, and you might get, you know, hopefully you get eight out of 10 of those, right? And, and if you, and, and if you drive a great input and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, we're delivering this input and the outputs aren't coming, you probably don't have the right input metric then. You probably have to go back and go, well, that's maybe isn't still the right input metric. It's gotta be something else because you're doing everything great here and the result isn't coming. Then you, you need to go back and figure out what the right input is. This concept of being clear about the input metrics versus the output metrics is written in a, in a book called Working Backwards about Amazon, which is an incredible book about talking about all the, the business techniques that you all used at Amazon. Did you at Amazon and at Airbnb, do you literally have a list of these are the input metrics and these are the output metrics or is it? You know, we don't run Airbnb precisely like Amazon. So it's not that quite that literal, but I think that framework is helpful for me as, as I lead the teams on what we're working on. Um, so yeah, we don't quite precisely use that language, but effectively that's what we do. We, we focus on the things that we know we can own and control and, um, and, and that's what we you know, wake up worrying about every day.
We have another question from the audience about the balance between high level and detailed uh, drilling down. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's a challenge to, to do both appropriately. Uh, how have you personally felt that, how do, how do you both understand the strategy and the high level and then drill down the details and make that balance appropriate? Yeah, it is, it is a challenge. I mean, I think one of the things that I, I learned from Jeff Bezos that he did really well is, again, you can't imagine the size and the scale of the company that it grew into. You can't audit everything every day to your point. You can't be in those level of details. So what he would do is he'd kind of go across and every once in a while drill down. And he'd find an area that he was curious about and he would drill, drill, drill. And he would keep asking questions, like you said, five whys or get to the root cause and, and go all the way deep and audit it and, and make sure that it was solid. Like make sure that yes, they have the right input metrics. Yes, they're delivering on those results. Yes, they're thinking about this strategically right. Then he might come up and he'll go over to a different space. And so he would use this audit mechanism um, as, a, as a way to do it. And at Amazon, it was through um, the goal setting, which you might've heard, you know, it had, I don't know the time I left, maybe it was like 450 or so goals. Um, and again, those goals were generally input goals. There were a few output goals, but the vast majority were input driving. And those were ways to audit because, you know, if you're measuring, I don't know, the Amazon Web Services business, you could have thousand goals, but, you know, what are the, you know, in this page, there might only be eight that matter. And, it, and it's not, and they were at different elevations, um, you know, could be high level, could be low level, um, you know, and he would go in and audit those. And so I, I, so I like that approach and that's worked well for me. It's like, so as we do reviews, I might go deep in a particular area and test and make sure then it also tests you whether they have the right leader thinking about them the right way. And, and if you kind of keep testing in there and it's, you hit some soft spots where their thinking's not right or the results aren't good, then you kind of, you know, then you know to do, make a change. When you when you have these 450 goals, what is the cadence or frequency with which uh, Jeff or a leader would would evaluate them? That was a quarterly process at Amazon. So it was kind of four times a year you would sit down and do them. Um, you know, the, Amazon had daily flashes, you know, so like an automated report that comes out every day for the results, a weekly business review. So how we do last week, which um, which is in greater detail, uh, a monthly business review. Okay, how we do versus our expectations for the entire month, and then a and then a quarterly review. So it's usually um, and then the goals, the key goals were you know monitored through those you know um, processes. So um, usually the sub teams would look at them every month so that then they can report every quarter back to um, yeah. Jeff and the leadership team. Very interesting. As you think about people you've worked with over the years, uh, one question is, what's the best advice anyone has, has ever given you? Love to hear about that. Well, I, I think it's back to the example I gave you in Amazon Web Services, like to go, go take a chance, go take a, a risk on a challenging role that maybe is not intuitive to you at the beginning, but that you can learn a lot from. And, um, and that wasn't intuitive, but um, it's been some of the best advice that I've received and now that I give to others. That's terrific. Uh, so take a risk uh, the way you did and, and twice uh, going from a large organization to a smaller organization and, and obviously learning a lot and uh, yeah. adding a lot of value. Uh, the next question we have from the audience is about your management style. How has your management style changed over the years? What have you learned when it comes to building teams and having employees that are productive and loyal. 
Hmm. Oh, do we have another hour to <laughs> we have um, two minutes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what were key points? I mean, I do think there is um, a level of how you kind of trust your employees. So I, I do think there's this level of making sure you align on what the goals are and then trust them to kind of accomplish those goals. And and there and therefore, if you audit them, so I you know I like to meet with each of my directs every week, um, you know, and just as a touch base to see how we're doing. And that's I think a great cadence of just ensuring that we're on track for you know whatever the key um, goal that we might have for the individual. Go back go back to those ten goals that we have. Like how are we doing? You know, you don't check in on all ten every week, but but it's a nice framework where you check in on some of them as you go. And I think that's the best way to. They align with your employee where you're not micromanaging them. They understand what success looks like, and then they're very trusting. And I think that uh, you know that's that's worked really well uh, for me over time. Um, I'm also I don't know more more patient maybe than than I was. I, I think um, over time I've I've you know I think this idea of the inputs versus outputs makes you in some way more patient because you don't immediately turn the dial on everything um, and. But I'm also, and you can do it in a kind way, just still kind of relentless. Like it's still, there's a tenacity of driving for results, a, a high expectation. You can do that in a um, kind of kind way. You can do that in a very thoughtful way, but you can be very persistent. It's like, okay, you know, we really are off track and these are the key things. And so, um, and I think that's actually, you know, where Andy is, is amazing. I think he's very tenacious and persistent, detail oriented, um, but, you know, you know, he's not like incredibly impatient and everything. It's just, it's very deliberate in the style. So I think maybe my style has gotten more deliberate over time, which I like. Well, Dave, this has been a fascinating discussion. We'd like to end with one last question. Uh, if you were going to write a, a playbook for chief financial officers, what's one thing that a CFO can do tomorrow morning to help their companies or their careers or their lives? Yeah, I'll focus on one because um, I'm again. I kind of consider myself an operating CFO, so we help to run the business, I'm, and we're in the service of others. So we so we're in the support business. We support you know business partners of, of varying degrees and, and various spaces. And so I think aligning with your business partner on their goals. What do they care about? It goes back to those five. What are their two? Pick the two goals that are most important to them for the end of the year, and align on that. And how can you support it? So I think tomorrow you go meet with your business partner align on the two things they want to get done by the end of this year and how you can specifically support them in achieving those goals. I think that would go a long way. That's terrific advice. Well, Dave, once again, thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak